gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Daniel Digger! This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by The Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Uh, go to thedispatch.com to find all our great stuff and uh, to become, hopefully, a, a member of the Dispatch community for 2021, if you're not already. Thank you to everybody who already is. You made 2020 really a much better year than we had any right to expect, and we're super grateful for it. And we uh, want to run through the tape and do really great things in the year to come. Uh, so today's episode is a little different than normal. Uh, we recorded this conversation back in November. Uh, it was We did this uh, post-election event. It was virtual. We didn't want it to be virtual, but uh, pandemic, yada, yada, yada. And uh, we hope to have a lot of live events in the year and years to come. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why you should become a, a member of the Dispatch. But we did this great virtual conference, and um, one of the highlights, at least... I get to say that was my conversation with uh, Senator Sass. Keep in mind, this was this originally took place about a week after the election, and um, which made it a more challenging conference to put on because we had uh, a president refusing to concede or acknowledge that he lost. Uh, but I think the conversation, all in all, holds up really well, and and Senator Sass is always great to listen to, and um, really want to thank Ben Sass for doing it. So I hope everybody's having a great time with their families. And uh, here we go with uh, Senator Sass and yours truly. Uh, my next guest is probably most famous for his repeat appearances on the Remnant podcast. Um, he's also known for a few other things. He's probably um, the country's foremost flack for big runza. Um, in his high school, high school yearbook, he was voted most likely to remind the teacher we have a quiz today. Um, he's got more degrees than a thermometer. He talks faster than Bill Clinton in a confessional, and he's got more layers than um, uh, Steve, a Steve Bannon ensemble. So, uh, but he was also, I heard somewhere, reelected to the Senate for a second term from the great state of Nebraska. He got more votes than anybody has ever gotten on a ballot in, uh, in the state of Nebraska, which is impressive, though we need to remind people that the Cornhuskers were not, in fact, on the ballot. Um, so, Senator Sass, uh, welcome. Thanks for doing this, and congrats on the re-election. Thank you. Good to be with you. And you, uh, you win my bingo card with Big Runza. I knew that at some point in this hour together, someone would attack the greatest fast food establishment in America. <laughs> um, there are some people from Culver's who need to talk to you about that. So... Um, Let's just start with the election. What's your big takeaway from the election results? And then we'll get a little more granular on it. Uh, we are a right of center nation. And uh, despite the fact that we live in a time of really fractured media environment and anti-media and very few shared facts, um, it turns out we are a center right nation. And even if people might not have a kind of philosophical embrace of limited government. I think there is a broad functional embrace of limited government. Government can only get so many things done. It ought to focus on a small number of them, try to do it effectively, pretty pragmatically, and get the heck out of the way for people's life and, and entertainment. I don't, I don't think most people want their uh, mental space to be occupied primarily by politics. And so I, I think that piece is pretty dang good news. 
So does does that mean that the um, the rhetoric about how the Democrats are socialists actually paid off in a certain sense that people, you know, believed that the Democrats had moved so far to the left that in a anti-presidential incumbent mood, so to speak, uh, Republicans did so well nonetheless? Well, I mean, when you say it like that, it makes it sound like it was just a messaging exercise by Republicans to say that Democrats were flirting with socialism. I think I've heard uh, Jim Garrity say, and I think it might have been in a conversation with you. I can't remember uh, where he said it, but he said if the the Trump campaign could have paid Bernie Sanders to campaign in South Florida, uh, they would have given him all of their money. Um, The reality is, talking to some of my Democratic colleagues around here, they are livid that other Democrats in leadership didn't stand up and say, defund the police is really stupid. It's bad policy. It's bad rhetoric. And most people aren't paying attention to politics. But if you come up with a catchy slogan that says you're against the government doing the most basic sort of fundamental government 101 kind of things, it turns out a lot of that sleepy electorate is going to go, how can we slap you upside the head? Um, So final numbers I don't believe are in, and I'm not good at math. But by my calculation, you overperformed Donald Trump in Nebraska by somewhere between like 15 and 5,000 percentage points. Um, what does that say about the electorate of Nebraska? And is Nebraska, too, now a, an island of blue? In the, um, not that it, it needed to be blue to vote for you, but um, it does feel like something's happening there. What, 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 what does this say about the electorate of your own state? You know, I don't know how to compare it to other places, but as a first time politician six, seven years ago, I guessed, I guess um, we went out and we campaigned for every vote and we talked to everybody like they're real people and they're not political addicts. And we won all 93 counties and we more than doubled up my general election opponent. And this time, even though the president was, you know, uh, hitting me pretty hard uh, in the weeks leading up to the election. Um, We won all 93 counties and we more than doubled up my opponent again. I think my worst uh, number anywhere in the state was, I think we got 58% in Omaha. And um, to your point about Nebraska, for your viewers who don't, your listeners who don't know, um, Nebraska and Maine are the only two states that don't do winner take all electoral college. We apportioned by congressional district. Um, and so the second congressional district of Nebraska, we have three, um, is basically Omaha and some of its suburbs. And uh, Biden won, I think, uh, about 55, 44 over Trump. And we got 58 there. Um, and so I don't know how to sort of parse it all out. Like you say, not all the numbers are in and I haven't done all my data nerdiness, despite the fact that you said I would have told my high school math teacher today was quiz day. Um, we'll definitely crunch the numbers to understand. But I think when you get, you know, 67, 68% of the vote and the, that last time I got 65 two cycles ago, I think what that means is I'm getting the pretty far right or the the a Trumpy group and I get all the way to maybe a little bit left to center right now. And I, I think it's because we try really hard to focus on the big things about sort of political worldview, which is to say that government and power are not the things people really want to orient their life around. They think a framework for ordered liberty matters, but really they know that Husker football runs us and definitely their family and their place to worship and their neighborhood and and job stability matter to them more. And so we just try to talk about those kinds of things. And it's hard. I, I mean, I've nerded out with you on this before. 
but it's hard to ignore the eight and the 6% and focus on the 86%. And those numbers are real. Um, This big sociological study called Tribes that came out about a year and a half ago showed that only about 14% of the American public pays attention to political news on a daily basis. 86% of people don't want politics to be the center of their life. And so even though I'm on the kind of right end of the spectrum on an ideological continuum, if you do a two by two, or if you add two dimensions to this, if you have, you know, progressive to center left to centrist to center right to whatever the the right end of the continuum would be, my voting record is among the most conservative in the U.S. Senate. But I think the y-axis kind of matters more, um, which is the political engagement tiers and you've got political addiction at the top, you've got kind of healthy middle brow people in the middle, and then you've got politically disengaged at the bottom. And I think one of the most fundamental things that's happening in our time is we're crowding out the middle in terms of political engagement. And we're, we're driving a lot of people away. And then we're make, pretending that anybody wants to pay attention to or participate in politics has to be a political addict. Well, it turns out very, very few people really think that way. About 8% of the American electorate is politically addicted on the left. About 6% is politically addicted on the right, by which I mean they make political media consumption uh, a center of their identity or their tribe. And it turns out the vast majority of Americans don't want to be tribal. I want them to be maybe slightly more conservative than they are, but I'm pretty happy about the fact that most Americans just don't want tribalism. Yeah, and I wanted to get some of that stuff in a bit, but I mean, it does raise one question. Um, here at the dispatch, we had these internal arguments about um, whether or not Trump's strategy or Biden's strategy was correct in an environment when persuasion was no longer the key to winning, right? It was in, in a turnout election, if you don't think there are any more gettable voters out there, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Turnout is everything, and turnout of the people who are hyper engaged makes the most sense. Um, I, I want to stay on the punditry, but just since you brought it up, um, how do you actually flip that so that our the conversation in Washington is actually about persuasion and and, and engages those who don't want to be hyper engaged, while not letting the sort of the super tribal partisans at the fringes control the conversation. Yeah, well, I mean, we have a guy on my team who uses the phrase, and you know, I don't like him, but my wife likes him, so we repeat the phrase. Uh, he it says, Wegman? What? "It's Wegman." Yeah, yeah okay. Uh, it's a thanks for understanding who my wife might be able to tolerate because she's a lovely, charitable human, and I know that this guy should be banished to to Siberia. Um, he he says, what do we want? Prudent change. When do we want it? In the fullness of time. Like, <laughs> like normal, healthy, one cheer for politics, kind of Eisenhowerian middle brow stuff. It's really hard for people who do politics as their whole life, career politicians. Uh, is, I ran for something for the first time ever in my life in my primary six and a half years ago. And so I recognize that I'm an outlier here. But for people who do this all the time, the feedback loops you get from other politically addicted people become like it's normal, but it's not really normal. That's really not how normal people think or act. And so I think it's useful if you've ever done any like open water swimming. Uh, if, you, if you're swimming somewhere that's really far away, you can get sideways in a hurry and start doing these radical Z uh, maneuvers 
and you waste a ton of energy. And it's pretty important to pick a spot on the far shoreline and keep aiming at it, no matter how much rough water you're going through in the moment you're at at the time. And I think we just need a lot more people in politics who kind of think the center of life isn't supposed to be power structures. It really is supposed to be a whole bunch of neighborhoods and towns and communities across a 330 million person continental, really diverse nation. And if you really believe that all those little corners are the center of the world, then you think politics has a more limited set of responsibilities and talk about those things. Talk about the future of work, uh, talk about basic American civics. I want us to do some federalism because in a place this diverse, we could make some policy progress if we did it around these you know, agglomeration economy super cities. I wanna talk about the long-term technology race with China. Uh, it's, it seems to me we should have a, a smaller set I don't know if it's a dozen or if it's half a dozen, but we should have a smaller set of issues that are much longer term. And so when we ran my campaign, and I obviously had a pretty uh, aggressive Trumpy primary challenger in my race this last year, we said, I'm running for re-election and my wife and kids were on the trail with me. We're running for re-election because of issues that are primarily about 2030, not about 2020. And I think that's what most people actually want politics to be about. But you'd never know that if you only pay attention uh, to the 14% that are addicted or on our side of the aisle, uh, the 6% of the public that is politically addicted on the right. I just don't think those people are very representative. I'm glad they're engaged in civic life. But I think it'd be healthier to go from three cheers for politics down to two or one and a half. Um, okay, we're going to put a pin in all that and get back yeah. to it in the egg-heady portion of the conversation. But I, 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 I owe it to uh, dispatch subscribers, attendees of this thing, and to my colleagues. I, you probably missed it, but yesterday Steve Hayes um, put down the chicken wings and had a conversation with Ryan's previous. Um, and uh, and he was a little tough on Reince, and so it put a little pressure on me because they go way back to Wisconsin and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I got to ask you some questions. The 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 single most asked question at with varying degrees of friendliness and hostility uh, that I got from people when I, when we announced that we were going to do this conversation was I'll paraphrase it. You were very forthright, and for people of a certain stripe that I'm more in camp with. Uh, you were very bold and courageous in speaking truth to power about the nature of Donald Trump and the nature of his campaign style and the nature of his, for want of a better word, governing style um, at the beginning of your, at the beginning of his term in you know, 2016, 2017. And then much like the Shia for decades in Iraq, you had your quietest period where um, you didn't say very much. And this caused great frustration among people who had pinned their hopes on you as the guy who was going to, you know, call Trump to the carpet and call BS and all sorts of things. And then lo and behold, towards the end of your campaign and the end of your first term, uh, particularly after your primary, um, or actually really the day before your primary, if I think I have that right, and then more afterwards, uh, you kind of returned to the old Ben, Stat ben Sass, who had been the dashboard saint of, of Trump critics, uh, can you explain your thinking? Is that a fair or unfair characterization? Um, I'm sure you have heard this from others besides yeah. me. Yeah. So first of all, um, feel free to ask any and all hard questions. Uh, and I get why people might think that, but it's just not true. Um, so the reality is I declined to serve on the president's reelection committee. Uh, it was front page news in Nebraska for quite some time. 
as I was launching my re-election campaign against a Trumpy primary challenger. So <clears throat> fundamentally, uh, we, we made clear that we differ from the president on lots of things all through our primary, including running a TV ad during my primary saying, hey, the president and I don't always agree, but I'm going to tell you what I think. Uh, I think his judicial picks have been extraordinary. I emphasize that in my primary because I went on the Judiciary Committee right after Trump was elected in November of 16. Mitch McConnell and I huddled in uh, either late November, early December of 16. And Mitch basically said, hey, you and the president are obviously in a rocky place. I campaigned for everybody not named Donald Trump in the 2016 Republican primary, uh, primarily Marco. But I also campaigned uh, with Carly Fiorina. I campaigned with Ted Cruz. Uh, we went to New Hampshire. We went to Iowa. One of my kids who was a high schooler uh, went up and moved to New Hampshire for a while to campaign for Marco. Uh, so Mitch said, hey, you and the president-elect of our own party are not in a good place. Uh, one of the things you might want to do is I'll give you a, a seat on the Judiciary Committee if you want it. And if he doesn't nominate the kinds of constitutionalists he said he was going to, you'll be able to fight him from inside the Judiciary Committee. And if he does, you can be one of the messengers, champions of the Trump picks. And so the president and I built a pretty good relationship around judicial nominees. I gave him lots of credit for that. There are a whole bunch of places where the president and I have disagreed. I don't need to regurgitate uh, and relitigate all those. But we told Nebraskans that during our whole primary. It didn't fit a national media narrative very well um, because they wanted the story of every Republican in the same place of having become a Trump loyalist. Um, and so, you know, something as basic as comments that I've made in the last couple of months. Uh, about my worry that the Senate, which was by far the most important election in America last week, in my view, uh, stopping the, the ending of the deliberative structure of the Senate by ending the filibuster, um, packing the Supreme Court, a lot of the things that could have happened if the Senate had gone blue. I thought the Senate was going to be at great risk because of a lot of the anchor of President Trump around certain candidates across the country. And so I said a lot of that. Um, but I've been saying that for months. It was that the national media decided at one moment that this was a new thing of Republicans abandoning Trump. So for a lot of your viewers who don't live in Nebraska, um, I can see how they would have heard reporting of it that follows the kind of narrative that you've just mapped. But it's not the reality of what happened on the ground in Nebraska. Uh, and if you went through the kind of death threats we received at my house when I was refusing to serve on the president's re-election committee. It was either July or August of 2019. Um, I think it would have played differently for people. Now, one thing I will say for those who want to criticize how I've handled the, the four years, maybe the year and a half of an initial Trump campaign and the four years of the Trump presidency, one thing that I would do differently uh, if I had it to do over again is that I draw a pretty deep distinction in my mind between campaigning and governing. And so I never used the term never Trump because to me, I worked with President Obama when he was president, though I differed with him on a ton of stuff. I'm going to differ with um, you know, President-elect uh, Biden after January 20 on a whole bunch of policy issues. And yet I'm going to work with him on a whole bunch of things. I didn't do a good enough job, I don't think, after January 20 of 2017 of pivoting from campaigning to governing phase. And so I did still quite a bit of media in early 2017. And ultimately, I just found it really boring. Uh, because if you say to, you know, whatever, MSNBC, I agree with President Trump and his administration on this issue or these five issues, and I disagree with them on this set of issues. It turns out the clip they play is only the disagreement half. 
you, you there's not room for nuance on cable TV where they're looking to just take part of a soundbite from you. So after the spring of 2017, um, I decided to just talk a lot less about Donald Trump, the man and Donald Trump's tweets and a lot more about longer term policy issues. But that change was in the summer of 2017, not when I was in a reelection campaign. Okay, I'm going to artificially intrude from the future and interrupt this conversation right here to uh, talk to you for a second about Tommy John. As longtime listeners know, I am actually a huge fan of Tommy John. Uh, it's, it's, it really is a great product. And um, uh, I have lots of Tommy John products of my own, but I will not discuss it further than that for the time being. You've had enough to deal with this year, so don't overthink your holiday gifts. Since we've all been living in our sweatpants anyway, give your loved ones some pro-level Tommy John loungewear. This holiday season, Tommy John is making sure you can give the gift of comfort to everyone on your list and yourself with Tommy John's men's and women's loungewear. Say goodbye to old stained sweatpants. Tommy John loungewear is luxuriously soft and guaranteed to fit perfectly with the same level of comfort and innovation that goes into everything Tommy John makes. Plus, Tommy John's loungewear pajamas and underwear come in limited edition sets, perfect for gifting, but they sell out quick. Tommy John underwear puts a permanent end to sticking and chafing, so order now and experience it yourself. And there's no risk with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Order now. Go to TommyJohn.com slash Remnant. That's TommyJohn.com slash Remnant for up to $30 off site-wide and get last-minute holiday deals for a limited time only. Get up to $30 off for a limited time at TommyJohn.com slash Remnant. TommyJohn.com slash Remnant. See site for details. All right, since you said the words, which so many of your colleagues um, are loathe to utter, uh, President-elect Biden, um, we are not supposed to curse on this podcast, so I will not use the colloquial expression most people are familiar with. Um, what do you make of the fecal festival that we are witnessing right now in terms of uh, the claim that the, the election was stolen? Um, you know, just see... So to level set where I'm coming from, mm -hmm. I think this is outrageous what's going on right now. And uh, Donald Trump is saying that the Democrats have stolen the election so that he can steal the election. And, um, and the problem with Mitch McConnell's statements, which I think were more defensible than some others, um, but the, the problem with even a lot of senators and a lot of Republicans I respect, never mind the people who are you know, are, are, are carrying water like Gunga Din for the, for the Trump people right now. Um, this argument that you hear, which we heard yesterday from Reince, from Karov, and even from Joe Trippi, that uh, the president has every right to, to exhaust his legal remedies. People do this kind of thing after every election. They ask for recounts. They ask for recanvassing. Um, they file lawsuits about irregularities. And the president has every right to do that. And I, on the surface, have no objection to that. The problem is that you now have a situation where um, this is providing cover for the White House's or the president's claim that the election was stolen. 
And it sounds like Republicans are saying, oh, let him keep saying this because this is normal. This is not normal. We, and, and now we have this hemorrhaging problem where Morning Consult came out with a poll yesterday saying that 70% of Republicans now say that we do not have a free and fair election. Um, is this something that, I mean, I know you're one of the few senators who actually said the words President-elect Biden and called Donald Trump's bluff on this. But isn't this approach from Republicans right now um, in, in danger of festering a really poisonous attitude that is going to hang over a Biden presidency in the country for a very long time? Yeah, so I think there may be three things to distinguish in there. Uh, the, the part that you were quibbling with about people saying allow anybody to exhaust their legal options versus allowing that to be cover for saying an election was stolen. I think that's just the first and fundamental distinction I would agree with. And so let's let's acknowledge that anything that had any nation with 330 million people and whatever our total number of votes is going to be. 148 million or whatever. I don't know what the, the total lands at. Um, but there are and there always have been irregularities. The question is, how many and what do you do about it? So to me, um, it seems pretty obvious that Vice President uh, Biden is going to end up with around 306 electoral votes, which is exactly what Trump got in uh, 2016. And so that's not a particularly close, obviously it's not close in terms of the popular vote, but our constitutional system is an electoral college vote, but 306 to whatever the, the remainder is on that math, uh, 230, I guess, um, that's, that's not particularly close. And for Trump to have any claim here, they would need to overturn uh, either two big states or three states overall. And it doesn't look like any of the elections are really in doubt. That's not to deny that some of those irregularities should absolutely be fully investigated. The, the best claim or the most uh, credible uh, Trump claim that I've seen is the 3,000 uh, non-Nevadans potentially voting in Nevada. That stuff should be investigated, but that race is being decided by, I don't know what the current vote total is, but it's tens of thousands. So that's not a stolen election, um, but those 3,000 votes should absolutely be investigated. So I think first, we need people to believe in the election. And so these investigations, wherever there's a credible claim, not Rudy Giuliani in front of a you know, porn shop uh, or whatever, uh, total personal landscaping or whatever it was called. <laughs> Four Seasons Landscaping. Thank you. Four Seasons Landscaping. It's going to have tourists for the rest of its life taking their pictures in front of it, which is maybe the only landscaping country that will have that. I've, I've got to imagine there is some entrepreneur who's going to figure out how to make a boatload of money off inappropriate t-shirts. Uh, <laughs> I, I might be conflating the sex shop and the landscaping The sex company. shop was next door and the crematorium was across the street. So okay. it really is... It's got everything. It's it's got nature. It's got death. It's got sex. I mean, Stormy Daniels probably had videos in the sex shop. So I mean, it, it's it's really it's a it's 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 a it's almost a literary moment in American life. Is this a place where I could go back to what do we want? Prudent change, Joda, on your rhetoric. <laughs> Let's just move from here. But if if we were going to stay in the parking lot or the sub-parking lot of a crematorium slash porn shop slash landscaping company. I want Kate McKinnon there with those weird Rudy Giuliani fingers she can do. <laughs> um, I, I think that it is critically important that we have some shared facts and some shared civics. 
And so I'm not here to criticize any of my colleagues on the pacing of how they're uh, responding to this and how they're talking about it at home. But from where I sit, um, it looks like the vote totals 306 electoral votes, and I, I haven't seen any evidence to the contrary. Um, all right, so I, wa I, I want to move on to what all of this means for the future of the GOP and all that, but there's also just a whole bunch of crazy breaking news today and yesterday. Um, Mike Esper was terminated on Twitter, of course. Um, there's talk about a sort of a Devin Nunes loyalist going to flame out. There's stuff going on with the national security people. Um, the White House is refusing to cooperate with um, the transition team, Joe Biden's transition team. Um, and you also have um, uh, all sorts of, you know, you have Bob Barr's uh, decision to Bill Barr, sorry, to, Bob Barr would be interesting, um, uh, to, to authorize investigations of these things, which caused a uh, career head of the division that investigates these things to resign. Um, what do you make of all of this? I mean, this is, I mean, one of the things that defines a democracy and a functioning healthy democracy is that a certain amount of it has to function on goodwill. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there are, you, you can't just, not everything has to be, can be legally mandated. Some of it ha just has to involve graciousness, civic mindedness, um, and acceptance of the norms and rules. And clearly that's not what's happening right now. And, you know, Donald Trump has not had at least a public on his public schedule, a national security briefing an intelligence briefing since October one. Um, this, this isn't just, you know, shenanigans that plays out for Hannity. This is real governance stuff. What do you make of all of it? Well, first of all, let's start with your point about, uh, peaceful transitions and the customs around them are one of the fundamental aspects of democratic republicanism, right? So let's do civics nerd for a minute. You set me up by calling me. I know I was, I was triggering this kid. Um, 1800 is still one of the most fascinating moments in all of political history. And people all around the world, when Jefferson upset Adams in the election of, of 1800 and their transition was going to happen in March of 1801, people all around the world assumed the U.S. would go to civil war. They didn't think democracy could work. Um, you need a strong man. This is the sort of pre-American view of power as tribe, as um, ends justify the means. The American idea is extraordinary that it thinks that all 330 million of us are created in God's image with dignity and governance isn't the government isn't the center of life. It's just a shared project to maintain some space so all the centers of life can flourish. Everybody thought America would go to civil war when, when uh, Jefferson beats Adams. And Adams voluntarily goes back to Massachusetts. It blew people's mind. I mean, in, in England in particular, people stood around saying, this is just absolutely impossible. We've got bad reports. There's no way Jefferson has become the president and Adams willfully vacated um, the executive mansion. It can't be. So we got to have more celebration of that kind of civics so that everybody understands during a moment like this what your obligations are. So I sit on the Intelligence Committee, as you know, and Marco Rubio is our acting chairman. And even though he's been in a slightly different place than I have been uh, in the last handful of days about this moment, I think he said it really well when he said, there's absolutely nothing 
wrong, uh, no matter what position Team Trump administration folks have on a ballot challenge in Arizona or in, in a county in Pennsylvania or something, there's nothing wrong with also in parallel letting the Biden team uh, transition plan. And so that's what should be happening. Um, okay, so there are reports that Trump is thinking about running in 2024. There are reports that he's going to try and set up a PAC so he can maintain control of the Republican Party. Um, you know, and I, I just wrote my column, my LA Times column about this yesterday. One of the things that, you know, as a concern, one of the few, statistically speaking, few conservatives in my line of work who didn't go Trumpy, I'm not alone, but we are not legion either. One might even call us a remnant. Um, we, uh, you know, one of the things we heard constantly was support our president, right? Be a good Republican, support our president. And for four years, one of the great advantages that Donald Trump had was that he was president. And because he was president, he was also the de facto head of the Republican Party. And so a whole Star Wars cantina, ideologically speaking, of populists, nationalists, MAGAists, own the libists, whatever labels you want to put on them, they could all don the mantle of just loyal Republican, right? And just everyday partisan. And, set, and demand loyalty and, um, and unity under those terms. And now, because Donald Trump has lost the election, we're seeing this you know, long-foretold conservative crack-up in a way where you have a handful of people who are revealing that they were, in fact, not really about our president or even our party, but about this one guy. And this one guy doesn't want to let go of that cult of personality. How? Do you see if, if Trump decides, whether he's going to run in 2024 or not, if he decides to, at minimum, go into a Sarah Palin phase and try to dominate the conservative conversation for the next couple of years, hurling criticisms at President Biden uh, and all of that, where do you see the Republican Party going? Is it still going to be Trump's party? What does that mean if it's Trump's party? Um, and what are you going to do about it? Well, uh, first of all, let's acknowledge that these parties have never been weaker. Yuval uh, has the great phrase that um, last Tuesday revealed something a lot of us have been saying for five plus years, uh, which is we have two minority parties in America. Um, I can't remember who had the line that uh, what, what happened in 2016 is it turned out a political party is a 747 fully gassed up and running uh, with nobody guarding the door. And it turns out anybody who can run and get up the steps and get into the cockpit and start flying down the, the taxiway may be able to just take a political party at any point. And I think we should recognize the contingencies around what happens next are really giant because the parties are so weak and there's such a small share of people that have any confidence in either of these political parties. I think the, the anti-anti moment that drives the political addicts subset of America is is giant. There, there's a lot of people willing to be fully vested in a political party if it comes up with the right enemies. Well, back to our 8% of politically addicted left, 6% politically addicted right, but 86% of people who just don't want politics to be that central. Um, I think there is a, there are a lot of regular people that are really, really tired of just lesser of two evils politics. I think there is a real deep desire for gratitude over grievance. 
I think that two political parties that are primarily angry about people in the other party, and by the way, there are a bunch of yokels in each party can look in the other party and say, there are a bunch of people who believe some really, really crazy stuff. There are a bunch of socialists who are power hungry in the left. But it turns out they're not a majority. They just nominated Biden instead of candidates that they had who would have done those things. I hope that Biden will stand up to the wokes and not himself take the feedback loop of the politically addicted. Um, but the reality is a lot of this anger flows from the fact that we just haven't been doing civics for years. One of the things that has most shocked me in my five and a half years here is I kind of thought 41% of America was Tocquevillian when I got elected. And one of my callings was to try to fight to get it to 45, 50, 55, or 60% of people being sort of Tocquevillian grass tops. I think the election last week and the, the way folks repudiated a bunch of different things at once and sort of partly by accident, but partly by collective will, uh, chose a rejection of uh, wokeism, but also said that they're interested in a, a variety of politics that isn't as personality-centric as every conversation, the John Mulaney riff about the horse in the hospital uh, kind of stuff. Um, it's not philosophical limited government, but I think it is kind of functionally limited government. And the question is, when media is all tiny, because we have no barriers to entry for new media. And so we have no shared conversations. And so everything is ultimately confirmation bias and not everything, but most things are. Uh, and feedback loop, how do you get to communicating an 86-ish percent message? Probably not philosophically 86%, but how do you aim at 60 or 70 um, instead of just the most uh, addicted feedback loop folks? I think there is a future that way, but I think we're going through a revolution, the digital revolution that's remaking neighborhood, community, uh, work, average duration of a job, and the way we mediate information. We haven't figured out what comes next, but I wouldn't just presume that a political party is one locked thing now because that was the addiction of any previous six months. I think there's a lot more uncertainty and contingency. I, I think you know the, the 1619 project at the New York Times, as an example, it's just really, really terrible history. Um, but it speaks partly to a very legitimate concern, which is America has failed to live up to our ideals. But the ideals are great. And it turns out in a burned over desert of no civics, a whole bunch of people could came in, come in and assert that the 1619 project was actually American history in lots of places where it was not. And I think that the need of the moment is for more constructive civics, for more constructive history. This is not just tonal moderation. It is, do we have enough shared content? We don't, we don't celebrate Harriet Tubman as a people. We don't celebrate the peaceful transition of power of 1800. There's, there's a million things we should be celebrating. Standing Bear in my state, one of the first great civil rights uh, heroes of American history and the courthouse in Omaha in 1879. We're not celebrating enough history. And it turns out if you have a parched, burned over desert of no shared facts and no civics, grievance becomes a pretty good community for a lot of people. But I just don't actually believe that that is the winning future. Yeah, look, I am totally with you on all of that. Um, it doesn't really answer the question of what the hell the Republican Party is going to do if Donald Trump continues to tweet like an escape monkey from a cocaine study 
and Bigfoot around um, the party. And I agree with you that we should have more celebration about civics and we should have um, more gratitude for what this country has given generations of people and, and, its, and its potential to give even more. But part of the responsibility of leaders of institutions is to lead. And I'm not calling you out here, but you are part of, you know, two very significant institutions at a pretty high level. You're part of the U.S. Senate and you're part of the Republican Party. And um, a lot of your own colleagues are not, in fact, doing the basic due diligence on what, what the current president of the United States is doing in terms of claiming that the election was stolen and about uh, setting up an infrastructure while still in office and while refusing to concede that will allow him to continually take advantage of this vast desert of civic ignorance. I mean, shouldn't Republicans say, hey, look, this is not what our country is about. You know, I mean, Lindsey Graham, uh, you know, Twice in one day, he said, first he said that Donald Trump should run in 2024 to keep this movement alive. And two, he said that if Donald Trump doesn't uh, contest these results and, and, and defeat them, no Republican president will ever get elected again. It was a remarkable mix of sycophancy and fear-mongering. And this is Lindsey Graham, who used to be very articulate and eloquent about what was great about this country. Um, I, I, I want transformation from below about civics and maybe even a religious awakening of some kind, but you know, shouldn't leaders be saying a little bit more bread and butter things about how our system actually works and that, aren't, that their own constituents don't believe that the system is rigged and that the demagogue is trying to cling to power, um, has sure. every right to cling to power? Sure. I mean, I, I hope you don't hear me ducking you because I'm not, but I'll, I'll say three or four things, but they're only in part. Uh, so to your direct question, should they be saying more? Of course. Uh, second of all, does mean naming particular people uh, that should be saying more in this context do any good? No, it doesn't. Uh, number three, do I fight with some of them in private? Yeah. Uh, that's happening. Uh, but number four, and where, where I think I want to argue a tiny bit that um, me saying that we live in a media environment that needs to be parsed, and you said that doesn't really speak to what you know an ex-president does over the next six months, I, don't, I disagree with you. I think it does speak to it because I think it's actually what's happening. I think when in the 1950s and 60s, when there was still some shared content, whether it's you know slightly left of center, major three TV networks, the sort of historical accident of the six o'clock news, but when 60% of households were watching it, or I Love Lucy, which wasn't important content, but it was massively shared content in the late 50s, any given week, uh, I Love Lucy had a 68% share. So inside a month, they were north of 90% of households had seen I Love Lucy. Not important content, but it was shared content. We are now 20 years into this century, and except for one-off events like the Super Bowl, there's never been any programming in any consistent way um, that had more than a 14% share. Uh, Sunday Night Football hit a 14% share for three weeks about seven years ago. Three weeks, Sunday Night Football had one-seventh of all households. Well, what happens if you don't have any shared conversation? It turns out people tend to nutpick. And it, it isn't like the, you know, the historic legacy media 
has acted in some grand, honorable way. You, you think about the anonymous book. Um, I bring this up because it's something I've been hearing about on porches in Nebraska over the course of the last three weeks. The anonymous book was marketed by the New York Times or you know, summarized um, as a senior White House official. And there was speculation in a lot of those pages that it might be the vice president, that the, the anonymous book. It turned out it was an acting deputy chief of staff at a second tier cabinet agency, right? Like there's lots of honorable Americans doing civic good work for their neighbor, working at DHS, but it wasn't the White House. It wasn't Justice, Treasury, State, uh, or Defense. It was the Department of Homeland Security with an acting guy who was partially going to become Deputy Chief of Staff. And when that story was told as if this was a senior official, what that does is it allows people to say, well, I think everything experts say far away is BS. It's all a bunch of lies. Well, it's not all a bunch of lies, but there are enough lies that a lot of people have huge distrust in our institutions. And so I, the reason I bring up the digital revolution and the fact that there are no barriers to entry is just because there's nobody that has massive share. You think about the number of people on Fox that are dedicated to CNN and MSNBC media critique and vice versa. And yet, I think right now, Tucker has some pretty huge ratings. Um, but in general, over the last three or four years, Hannity was the number one cable news program in the country and Maddow was number two. And they were at 3.2 million and 2.8 million viewers, which is also known as nine tenths of 1% of the public and seven tenths of 1% of the public. And so in a moment like that, it's not surprising that Donald Trump, who was a really effective media brand marketing star, Apprentice was whatever the number one program, despite the smaller numbers that we were mentioning, but number one program for like 14 years. Donald Trump was a shared bit of cultural uh, sinew that people had in common. And there isn't a lot that unites a nation right now. And so will Donald Trump rage tweeting a year from now um, still draw a lot of attention? Maybe more than anything else. Um, but will it actually draw a lot of attention? I doubt it. And so I, I think we have to recognize that we sit at a moment where thoughtful American moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas and neighbors have to realize that if we don't figure out how to do knowledge mediation and the habits of attention in a distraction economy, then the republic might be screwed. Right? Like, I think where we actually sit is at a time when some very basic personal habits about how you think about the rank ordering of what communities you care about may be essential to maintaining a republic. We could do Ronald Reagan, we could do Benjamin Franklin here, but whoever you want to name as how glorious it is to have an inheritance like this, and we have a moral obligation to pass it on to the next generation, in our time and place, that's partly going to be about media consumption habits in the age of the iPhone, because we're all tempted to be distracted by candy crush and porn. And the more interesting thing than, than media political rage crack is actually coach Little League, uh, volunteer for the local fire department, work the church potluck, love your neighbor, run for school board. Oh, by the way, also vote and be informed enough to vote in national elections, but probably don't pay attention to it all day, every day, as if it's a fundamental part of your identity. I don't know the Republic can survive if the eight and the 6% become like, you know, a, a majority. Okay. Sorry for the additional interruption, but, uh, I got to talk to you guys about uh, one of my favorite products, Lucy. Lucy Nicotine 
is a company founded by Caltech scientists and former smokers looking for a better and cleaner nicotine alternative. Finally, tobacco alternatives that don't suck. Researched and developed for three years to, make for, to be made for people, not patients, Lucy has created a nicotine gum with four milligrams of nicotine that come in three flavors, wintergreen, cinnamon, and pomegranate. Lucy also has a lozenge with four milligrams of nicotine in cherry ice flavor. I got to try that one next. Each and every flavor actually tastes great. So far, that's actually true. I actually tried the pomegranate the other day, and I'm not a pomegranate fan, but I liked it nonetheless. And it's convenient and discreet. Products can be enjoyed anywhere, on flights, at work, on the go, even in the gym. Now, I've been telling people for a while now to try, give a try to Lucy. I mean, it's not for everybody. If you don't have a need for nicotine, uh, you know, maybe this is not the time to start. But if you're trying to quit smoking or cut back on you know, the glorious habit of smoking cigars... Uh, I highly recommend this product for you. It's, 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 it's extremely useful. It's 2020. Get rid of your cigarettes, unplug your vape, throw out your dip, and get some Lucy nicotine gum or lozenges. This is the real deal. A subscription to Lucy comes directly to your door each month. It's so simple, and you don't have to leave your house because Lucy has delivery down. Remnant listeners, go to lucy.co. That's C-O. Go to lucy.co and use promo code DINGO to get 20% off all products, including gum or lozenges. That's 20% off at lucy.co, promo code DINGO. Also, I have to give this disclaimer. Warning, this product contains nicotine derived from tobacco. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. That's true. Lucy.co, and be sure to use that promo code Dingo. We thank Lucy for sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant. Yeah, look, I, again, I agree with all that, and, and, and I want to move on to other stuff, but I mean, part of the problem is, is that the people who decide how these parties operate, the people who hijack the plane, you know, which I believe was Ross Douthat's uh, characterization, oh, um, have outsized role in primaries. Primaries are bad. Republican Party is basically the means by which you hijack a um, the party is through the primaries. And those are the people who are addicted to this stuff. They're the six and 8%. And so the, the stuff that comes out at the end of the tube, um, after they rig the front of the tube is the stuff that is driving a lot of these problems. And so I think Donald Trump very well could have an outsized control over the people who control primaries. And that will have <laughs> downstream effects that none of us will be perfectly happy about. Oh, I do want to move on. Hey, hang on. Let's, 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 just, let's just go to Georgia for one second from there, if you don't mind sure. me jumping in, because I think I might say something that's nearer term and satisfy you a bit more, but I think it connects to the point you were just making, um, which is 20 years ago when I was an academic, right? I remember the one hump versus two hump theories of the electorate. I was a historian, mind you, but um, in political science. I hope you're going to get to camels really quickly. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's wrong on so many. Um, the, the political scientists were having this big debate in 1996 and in 2000 about whether or not elections were primarily won in the middle. Do you persuade inside that 7% uh, in the middle that are potentially movable? This is the one hump theory. Or do you have a two hump theory of the electorate, which is the, the placement along the ideological spectrum is fairly settled for most people, but it's a question about how you drive turnout among your base versus their base. How do you fill your second hump all the way to the top? 
And I aspirationally, despite again being, uh, you know, from a political policy orientation, being on the right end of the spectrum, um, I want America to be more of a one hump nation than a two hump fight. Um, but I think the last 20 years have mostly persuaded me that the two humpers were slightly more um, plausible than the, than the one hump theory. But I think what this election showed is that if the way both sides speak, that those two uh, legacy political parties speak is only to their own basis, there are a whole bunch of people who want to turn out and say, we don't like any of you people, screw all that. Um, we actually want more pragmatic, less political addiction. We want to reject wokeism. And maybe they personally wanted to reject Donald Trump, but they're open to the idea of a center-right nation kind of rebuilding uh, something that might be a multi-ethnic version of an orientation of policy around work. I think that's pretty dang good news. And so I, I just don't agree completely with your characterization that this party is a fixed thing and that these leaders can get it back and fix it by these leaders. I mean, these legislative leaders. I think there's going to be a debate about what the center-right party is. And I think the Georgia election is one pretty interesting place to see some of that parse. If, if my party decides that the main thing it wants to fight about in Georgia is relitigating uh, you know, a, a vote-counting dispute in one county in Michigan, in Georgia, my suspicion is Georgia's not going to go real well for us. If we explain, though, why you don't want the Democrats to be in charge of the Congress, why you'd rather have uh, Republicans in the Senate uh, being able to maintain a kind of orientation toward judges and a more rational China policy, et cetera, um, that's a better place to be than letting Schumer uh, do the bidding of whatever AOC primary he's scared of. So I think, I think in Georgia, we'll see a little preview of whether or not the center-right party can speak to longer-term issues. And I'm pretty hopeful. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I'm, I'm less hopeful given that both Republican candidates have already called for the resignation of the Republican Secretary of State there. Okay, I have to do this to time uh, okay. for reasons having to do with the Byzantine Empire. So we're going to do quick lightning round stuff. Uh, yesterday, Mike, uh, Congressman Mike Gallagher was asked by, by Steve um, what, his, what, what the three top national security concerns were um, in the near to midterm, you know, over the next 10, 15 years. And his answer was China, China, and China. Um, I didn't know that that was his answer. But that's mine too. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Do you want to reverse the order at all, or is just you're just going to stick with <laughs> okay, China, China, China? So, uh, um, what, what, you know, my my standard take on this is that we're going to be more hawkish towards China, and Donald Trump deserves some credit for it, you know, despite the way he handled it. Um, but the choice is whether it be stupid hawkish on China or smart hawkish on China. What does, I assume you're not in favor of a stupid hawkish. What does smart hawkish look like? Right. Uh, so number one, we need the American people to understand the technology race we're in. Uh, and that means that we need to do a better job of the American educational system being rigorous. China's going to turn out 1 million PhDs in electrical engineering and computer science this year. And we've got curriculum boards in California that say math is racist. 
So first thing about smart China is understanding that technology is a really big deal and America needs to compete better. And maybe a 1B is we need to be aware of what China is doing uh, in, in their competition and in their intellectual property theft. A second one, and again, I just want to reiterate, I'm glad you had Gallagher on. He's a, he's a rock star, really smart guy. I learn a lot from him. I didn't know he said China, 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 but that, that's, in my view, that's definitely the right answer. Um, number two, we need to build an alliance of freedom-loving nations uh, to surround China. Nations that believe in the open navigation of the seaways, that believe in the rule of law, that believe in intellectual property protections, uh, that believe in transparent contracts, that believe in free trade, that believe in human rights, that believe that the genocide against the Uyghurs is abominable, uh, and all free nations in the world ought to be standing up against that. So some sort of TPP plus digital technology standards. <clears throat> there are lots of nations. South Korea, Japan, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, the US, Vietnam, um, there are lots of nations that we should be bringing into a Trans-Pacific Partnership like Alliance, but adding digital technology standards to it. That would be my number two. And number three, we need to publicize for the world what is happening inside China to the Uyghurs, um, what, is, what is happening inside to Hong Kongers, um, the fears that are very, very palpable in Taiwan right now. We need to be doing more um, sunlight and transparency on the corruption inside the CCP. The reality is they have, I won't get near any lines from my intelligence uh, work, um, but there are some pretty important generational divides and industrial versus digital economy divides inside the CCP. There are 2,400 people um, that look like, so China's 1.4 billion people. There are about 90 million members of the Communist Party. There are about 2,400 more important communists than anybody else. So the uh, old animal, animal farm adage. The everybody's first among equal. equal. <laughs> exactly. First among equal. And, and, and the pigs were the, the animals that were going to be more equal than all the other animals when it came to uh, evening meal. Um, I think we need to expose a lot of those rifts inside the CCP leadership. You said lightning round, I'll stop. Okay. Um, and I, I skipped some other things. Last question, because my next panel with Jack Goldsmith, Yuval Levin, and Andy Smerick is on institutional decay and erosion. You covered a lot of this stuff already um, in terms of the ought, but, and, and even some of the is. But, uh, you know, rather than just simply describing the problem that we have with institutions, not just governmental institutions, but institutions writ large, the sort of bowling alone phenomena. What, what are concrete things other than moral, you know, exhortation and suasion and, and, and maybe teaching civics? How do you restore the role of institutions? How do you revive them? Um, because it can't just be words. Institutions are supposed to do right. things. So right. how do you do that? Well, so at a level of storytelling, this is not just words, right? It is entrepreneurship. I mean, the reality is when we went from the um, agrarian era to the urban industrial era, from 1870 to 1920, as we had massive immigration waves across the Atlantic, we had internal migration, we had urbanization, and we had the rise of big tool factory economy jobs. Um, we had to rebuild the kinds of grass tops institutions that define local neighborliness. The, it, it isn't just the, the Sunday school movement and the YMCA. It's that the vast majority of 501c3s in America, that's not what it was called in the, in the Internal Revenue Code back then, um, but the not-for-profit 
third sector of American life and American economy was built when we went from agrarian to industrial. It wasn't the same set of institutions. And we have to build new institutions for the digital era. The reality is we are much more mobile people. A lot of our economy shows that not everybody is benefiting from that right now. But obviously, we have more telecommunications, we have more transportation, you have more migration from to visit your grandkids. Mike Munger, a really thoughtful professor at Duke, has this idea of the rental drill, that there are basically two kinds of drills in America. There's a $50 drill and a $200 drill, and no normal people buy the $200 drill. We buy the $50 drill, but it never works. Uh, It's either got too short a cord or the battery's dead when we need it. And what you really would like is to be able to rent the $200 drill twice a year for the three minutes that you need it. And the Uber for everything is going to continue to create lots of disruption to local community and place. And yet humans are social animals who need neighbors. We need to be needed. We need thickness. We need family. We need friends, Aristotelian friends, not Senate floor friends, who you only use the term right before you try to rip somebody's throat out. But you have lots and lots of really smart viewers, really community-minded folks that are you know, original lifetime members of, of the dispatch. Those folks need to migrate more of their attention. This is not just exhortation. This is like actual venture philanthropy. We need to migrate more of our attention and our affections away from winner take all. The next election is the most important election in the history of my lifetime. Although Georgia is pretty dang important. (laughs) You can always do the throwaway caveat, uh, right? But the truth of the matter is we need a lot of people to be building more institutions where they're from. That old aphorism that nobody's ever going to create heaven on earth, only, you know, utopian dystopians ever try to create heaven on earth, but you can make your neighborhood a pretty darn special place. And that's what everybody in America who believes in the idea that politics are not central should be doing in the place where they live, work and raise their kids. All right. So um, almost perfectly the time. I thank you for it. I, I, any, any questions I didn't get to have to do with my lack of discipline in all of this? Uh, and I agree with you entirely about institutions. That's one of the reasons why we started the dispatch, is we thought we needed a new institution. So, uh, Senator Sass, congratulations again on your uh, stunning victory. Um, and I am sure that your uh, paymasters at Big Runza um, are very pleased. Um, and, uh, and, and I hope I'll get you back on the remnant so we can continue some of this stuff. I want to set a, an attendance record. <laughs> well, you know, I'm upset. You're not even wearing your five-time remnant gold jacket. Um, I got it, it as a tattoo. It, it's I've, I've put it in my skin. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay, so that was the conversation that I had with uh, Senator Sass back in November. We will hopefully get him back on the podcast, maybe even live in person in the studio again, which would be lots of fun. And we can talk about... Uh, how things have shaped up since then and what things are looking like in the new year. And again, thanks to everybody for listening and hopefully uh, 2021 will be not only better, but saner. And uh, thanks so much for all of your support and I will see you in the new year. Sure.